Father, we thank you for gathering us together, we pray, even as we dive into your word, that, Lord, you will speak to us, that, Lord, you will transform our hearts to the glory and honor of your name. We thank you, Father, for this, Father, that you've brought us. Indeed, you have been so good and so kind. So, Lord, we speak to every wandering mind. And, Lord, we bring every wandering mind to stillness, to your word this morning. That, Lord, it shall not be one of those words that people will say, this was a very good word, if only my neighbor was here. Because we are the neighbors who are here this morning for this word that, Lord, you've given us to the glory and honor of your name. So we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So um, thank you for being here on such a semi-cold morning. It's always a, 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 a fight that people have. Do I come out of bed or do I just stay? But I believe that you coming here is um, God is going to drop um, things that will shift into our hearts and in us as, as a whole in Jesus' name. And um, I'm not sure if we did this, but we are also so grateful that we prayed for peace in this country, um, in our tables as a church, and God honored and heard, heard, hey, heard, heard. Uh, sorry. Uh, uh. Mary, my PA, did not bring me water. So that is a problem. Um, but we, we bless the Lord. And we are so grateful. Now, I have a very um, daunting task to follow from um, Wamboy and Sam who um, preached very... Um, I'm not even sure which words to describe them, the messages that we've heard from them. And Wamboy was like, you have been on a six-week sabbatical. Now it is time for you to come back and, and to preach. But we are so grateful. And we have dived into the book of Romans. How many have enjoyed Romans so far? Amen. Amen, amen. How many are tired with Romans already? We need to move on to something else. Okay. Good, because we have another four more, no, five more weeks of Romans. So it is good that we still keep on the fire. Um, but again, what we will attempt to do as well is we will be sending out a survey for those questions that may be lingering um, in the whole course of Romans, so that on one of the five weeks that are coming, we will break it down and just be an answer, a question-answer session, so you'll be prompted on just being able to raise those questions um, in the course of this week and next week. So we hopefully, um, today I hope to be able to do uh, chapter 9, next week I'll do 10 and 11, by the grace of God. Um, then on that third week, we'll be able to do the, the Q&A. So we have gone through aspects, keywords of talking about righteousness. Whereby we have said when we are talking about righteousness, as Wamboy and Sam uh, painted, that we have a right standing with God. And this right standing is not because of our own effort. But it is out of the masses of God and we can only connect to God's righteousness by faith. And we have waited, we have moved through that when we are also talking about righteousness, that we are actually talking about God does not even consider us as sinners anymore. He wiped the slate clean for us. And some of the words that we've been, um, what's the term? Some of the words that we've been hashtagging, if hashtagging is a, is a word. Some of the words that we've been hashtagging in quotes has been that we are loved, called, set apart. That we have not been called to go with the flow. Because, you know, only dead fish flow with the current. 
Hello? That one of the things that Christ did, he caused us, or he picks us out and sets us apart, that we become counterculture. That we will not just flow with how things are flowing in society. That in itself means, doesn't, okay, let me, let, me, let me repeat it. That does not mean that we are boring. Look at your neighbor and tell them you are not supposed to be boring. If anything, if anything, because we are counterculture, we are always on the cutting edge of the new. Let me say it again. Because there are people in business that need to hear this. Because we are counterculture, just because people have said that for you to be able to grow your business, you need to raise capital by selling off assets of the company, but because we are counterculture, we'll be able to have the right proposals that as we send out, we are selling people of even things that we have already just seen by faith, even they before they are able to understand what do they mean. Let me repeat it again. Terence, Natalie, and uh, I'm not sure if Victor is part of the enterprise. Or some other guy who is not here. They are setting up something that is totally different. A catalog for everything wedding. And I sat down and I asked myself, why did I not think of that? But that's not my field. That's okay. But why I've called them out is because as we become counterculture, it does not mean we become wayward or we regress back. But as we tap into the mind of he who knows the beginning from the end, then he allows us to have snippets of things that will be there in 2050 while we are in 2022. So you cannot carry yourself in a haphazard manner. You, you, you need not to feel even that you need to always um, conform to the standards of what is happening all around. I love, I went and visited Sven in, in, in his company. And he had a workforce that would fill this place times two. Times three, sorry times three. And I asked, how do you keep all these people happy? Or it came up as part of the conversations. And he said, I ensure that I treat them properly. And they are treated well. That nobody wants to leave this company. And I was like, that is so counterculture. Because you know, it gets to a point where like, everybody is like a pawn to be used only for the arrival of the set goal. But God has called us to be different. God has called us to tap the mind of Christ. God has called us that even as he drops things, even if you do not understand them, write them down. Even if they do not make sense. And the problem is, if you are having people, you are working in the company of people who will not understand that faith is able to call on things that are not yet seen to make as if they are being seen. Because when you have a conversation who does not understand the principle of faith, even when you tell them that in this place, in this church, we have laid out all the seats because we have faith that they'll be occupied, someone will ask you, but why leave that dead space there? Why not think of other, another way of attacking it? This is, it has not yet been done before. Just because it has not yet been done before does not mean it won't be done. And just because it has not yet been done before does not mean that you cannot pioneer something new. Because God calls us into something that is new. That was not the sermon. That was just the start. Um, 
And then we dived into understanding that justification has nothing to do with us. That as we come to God, that we have also been set free from the power of sin. And one boy pointed it out quite um, elaborately, the fact that, you know, and this is where, let me, let me pause a bit and say, sometimes we hear messages out there talking about chapter 8 that starts from Roman 8 without really going through 1 all the way through 7. Because chapter 8 starts by saying, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But that is not a license for us to live careless lives. Because if the power of sin has been killed in us, then we will not keep on sinning because we've been because there is no condemnation. And the perfect analogy, food-wise, because I'm also a foodie, is a banquet that has been set with every manner of food possible that you may know or may not know how to pronounce. And then, you are asked to go and pick, and this is even the kindest illustration I can think about. You, can, you are asked, you are given a full um, buffet to pick from, and then you choose the foods that give you a stomachache, um, not Gideri. Gideri does not give stomachache. You, you go and pick foods that will damage and hurt you. Hello? That it does not, it, it does not even make sense. The fact that there is a table that has been laid for us and yet we would trade the opportunity of sitting in that table to come to a lesser table that does not even bring happiness to us. Hence, if the power of sin has been killed, then we cannot keep on going to revive that element of sinfulness in us. Then we talked about, or oh, one boy led us through um, chapter 8 and just our responsibility, our responsibility towards the Holy Spirit. And then finished off where we are going to start. Romans chapter 8 from verse 38 to 39. So now, uh, the Passion Translation, with the confidence that there is nothing in the universe with the power to separate us from God's love. I am convinced that his love will triumph over earth, earth life's troubles, fallen angels or dark rulers in the heavens. There is nothing in our present or future circumstances that can weaken his love. There is no power above us or beneath us. No power that could ever be found in the universe that can distance us from God's passionate love, which is lavished upon us through our Lord Jesus the anointed one. And so, in a nutshell, we have covered Romans 1 to 8. And Romans 1 to 8 has been us diving into what I would call the principles of salvation. The key to the doctrine of faith that we profess is within these first chapters that we've looked at. In the next four weeks or so, I hope. As we, or when you look at Romans 12 to 16, Romans 12 to 16 actually talk about the practicalities of living out um, this life as a believer. So there is these parts that we are covering. Romans 9, 10, and 11. And someone may ask, because it's always asked, why did Paul feel the need to include Romans 9, 10, and 11. And someone said this, that the reason for there to be um, Romans 9, 10, and 11 was Paul to be able to answer the question, what happened to God's originally chosen people, the Jews, after they had fallen off walking with the Lord? And so over this couple of weeks, we are going to look at 
those three um, aspects. And let me, let me write. So basically, as we are looking through chapter 9, we are looking at how God dealt with the Israelites in the past. Chapter 10 looks at how God dealt or deals with the, with the Israelites in the present and also in the future. So those three elements. Because we are being left on a high of saying there is absolutely nothing that can separate us from God's love. That is 8 from verse 38. But then the question begs, then what happens to the Israelites? So that's what we'll be dealing with. But before that as well, even in emphasizing the importance of Romans, there's a story that is told of John Wesley. And this is in his biography. And it says this. I went to America to convert the Indians. He wrote bitterly in his journal on his way home to England. But oh, who shall convert me? I have a fair summer religion. I can talk well, nay, and I believe myself when no danger is near. But let death look at me in the face and my spirit is troubled. Nor can I say to die is gain. I have a sort of fear that when I have spun my last thread, I shall perish on the shore. I have learned that uh, that I who went to America to convert others was not converted myself. Then he goes on to say, or the biography goes on to say, that there was a Mor Moravian who was leading um, Bible studies in London. And he says that he was asked to go and attend a certain meeting. And in that evening, Wesley says, I went there unwillingly to a society where one was reading Luther's preface to his commentary on Romans. And at about a quarter, to, a quarter to nine, while describing the change God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. Why am I saying this? I'm saying this to give a background, a background story in, in terms of just emphasizing the importance of us grasping the doctrine as explained in Romans. And John Wesley had at this point, he had known about God, he was preaching about God, but he had not experienced a heart change in his heart. Because if we get and as we consume the book of Romans and all the other scriptures and words, if it does not move from the head to the heart, it will only be knowledge that we have. But for there to be change wholesomely, that we must allow God's word to be able to hit our very hearts. That for us to be able to live out in faith, we must allow that this word not to just remain here. Because it is very easy to quote a scripture or two or three. But once it gets embedded in our hearts, then the real change will begin. Let's start. Let's start. Let's start before time runs out. Let's start um, chapter 9. So Paul uh, speaking. I'm reading from the Amplified Version. If you have your Bible and your neighbor does not have, just scoot over. Scoot over. Let's share the, the, the Bible. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience enlightened and prompted by the Holy Spirit, bearing witness with me that I have bitter grief and insistent, incessant anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off and banished from Christ for the sake of my brethren. And instead of them, my natural kinsmen and my fellow countrymen. Verse 4. For they are Israelites, and to them belong God's adoption as a nation. And the glorious presence, Shekinah, with them were special covenants made. To them was the law given 
To them, the temple worship was revealed and God's own promises announced. To them belong the patriarchs. And as far as his natural descent was concerned, from them is Christ, who is exalted and supreme over all. God blessed forever. Amen. So let it be. Let's pause there for a, min for a minute. So Paul begins by expressing a sense of anguish that is deep inside of himself. That his own people that were from the from his own people that they were languishing in a place of not knowing God. And he points out and he is able to express a concern that is abnormal, and I'll explain why. Because the same people that he was grieving over were the same people that kept tormenting him once he had converted. They are the same people that kept going town after town in ahead of Paul to go and say, this man that is coming is actually not in faith, that this person is lost. Do not listen to him. But yet Paul, out of, uh, uh, how do I describe it? Out, to, how, out of a love for his people, out of a love for their souls to be saved, writes and pens down the opening line and say, I am in anguish. Let me pause and ask, when was the last time that we felt an anguish for those who are not in faith, who are our friends, family members, or even countrymen. When was the last time you were moved that your neighbor is not born again or saved that you actually fasted for them? When was the last time that you had a falling out of, with someone and they dropped out of faith that you were so concerned about them that you kept on following them day after day after day, praying after them night after night? Remember we made a joke and we said, you know, we have this culture. If we have a falling out, even the pictures that we took together, we go and we scan them and because of Photoshop and all these other things, we blot out someone from being there. So if Gidi is standing with Alex or Felix, when we come and see the picture after they have a falling out, we start asking, hey, Kwani, were you here alone? Because Gidi is all by himself and the previous photo had uh, Gidi and Felix. That Paul says that he has an anguish. And Charles Spurgeon says this, that once we take in a heart for souls that need to come to Christ, then all the other things will not bother us. That lesser things will have no effect once we get enthused with our key mandate of being able to reach out to those who are actually lost. Let me say it again. That that neighbor of yours, no matter how flashy they are, if they do not have Christ, they are candidates that God has placed around your world for you to be able to reach out to them with the gospel. Somebody was picturing their flashy neighbor. Then Paul continues and says this, that since he identifies himself with the people, that it's almost like an ambulance. You know, whenever an ambulance passes by, there is an urgency that it carries with every siren that comes out. Because it carries and it announces to everyone around that there is an emergency. When did we lose the emergency ambulance signals in our walk with the Lord to make it so casual that we can bypass people in our world years after years? They do not even know whether we are witnesses of the Lord. When did it become so casual that it is easy for us to have conversations about the World Cup that is coming up or the, the soap opera that ended and we are even not mindful of the fact that the days that we are living are evil and the world could end at any time and that we continue to become witnesses. 
when did it become so uncool to talk about Jesus? Why have we allowed it to be so usual? That even when people are talking, there is no mention. There is no even quotation. There is nothing that points to Jesus. So Paul points out, and the same concern that Paul had over his people is the same concern that Moses had. In Exodus chapter 32 from verse 31 to 32, he says, Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, All these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. That we are not in a membership, a members club. Hello? Look at your neighbor, tell them you're not in a membership club. We are not in a membership club. That membership is only those who fit a criteria. The only criteria to be met is that we, as the members, are going out to recruit other members. And Paul speaks about the privileges that his people had experienced because they were a chosen people. And he says that these people had experienced an adoption. That they had been adopted in as the family of God. And Wamboy expertly spoke about this and gave us even the remark from John Stott. Where um, she said that in the Roman world of the first century, an adopted son was a son deliberately chosen by his adoptive father to perpetuate his name and inherit his estate. That they were chosen to be able to continue on to be a nation that would be admired by all who are seeing them. That the same applies to us as we sit here this morning. That we are here, yes, that our lives would be attractive to other people because of what God is doing in our lives. That we can continue to perpetuate, hey, that kizungu, we can continue to eh, advance. We will continue to be a sign and a wonder for those others, signposting everybody that comes our way to Jesus. Because if you're not a signpost, you have lost your ability to become a continuous active witness for Jesus. Hello? Hello? See, that is, a, that is what it says. That they were given divine glory. That they had covenants that they had written with the Lord. That above that, they could also claim some of the patriarchs because they were coming from them. So they had every single reason to hold on to faith. Yet they did not. That as we are here, let me put it in, let me turn it around. That we have seen the Lord moving in our lives. Yes, there are times things get hard, but that is part of life. We have seen God move and do things. We have sat around to hear word after word, scripture after scripture. And in effect, that should not make us to get to a place of complacency and think that we have arrived. Hello? Above that as well, that because of all these things that the Lord has done, one, we ought to continuously be at a place of thanksgiving before God. We ought to be at a place of continuously being um, eager to speak about he who has caused us to have a changed life. Verse 6. 
However, it is not as though God's word had failed, coming to nothing. For it is not everybody who is a descendant of Jacob, Israel, who belongs to the true Israel. And they are not all the children of Abraham because they are by blood his descendants. No, the promise was your descendants will be called and counted through the line of Isaac, through Abraham, though Abraham had an older son. That is to say, it is not the children of the body of Abraham who are made God's children, but it is the offspring to whom the promise applies that shall be counted as Abraham's true descendants. If you can pause there for, 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 for a second or two, not a second, for a minute or two. Now, Paul is asking a question and is asking, then does it mean that God's word had failed when we look at the lives of the Israelites? And he says, certainly not. Then he points out to something very interesting and says, and they are, they are not all the children of Abraham because they are blood by his descendants. As I was digging through what this could mean, because it says that Israel in itself also has a different meaning, meaning that for, those, for Israel it means governed by God. So Paul is saying that it is not all of Israel that had actually allowed God's governance to be over them. And so because they did not allow for God's governance to be over them, then it cannot be said that the whole of Israel had failed. But it is for those that submit themselves or submitted themselves to God's governance that we can start asking a question. Where are they? And even on them, you'll discover that God also had preserved for himself a remnant for himself from those who had allowed God to be able to reign and to rule over them. Let me bring it. Let me, let me, let me bring it down to us. That it is not all of us who are saying we are Christians are actually Christians. Because it is only for them that allow the Lordship of Jesus Christ to be their front and center, or to, to, they subscribe to this, that can be counted on by God as being his children. That we may have a population that says 80% of us are Christians. But just because you're called John Mark, or John Paul, does not make you a believer. <laughs> John Francis. And then, you know, Paul also says, he gives two parallels, and we look at the other parallels, and he speaks about that that is to save us eight. It is not the children of the body of Abraham who are made God's children but it is the offspring to whom the promise applies that shall be counted as Abraham's true descendants. Let me pause and ask, who are the sons of Abraham? I am one of them. Eh? And so are you. Eh? So let us praise the Lord. <laughs> Left hand, right feet, left feet, shake your head, nod your head, sit down. Aha, okay. <laughs> Who are the sons of, 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 of Abraham? Ishmael. Ishmael. The other one? Isaac. So, all of them were sons of Abraham. But not all of them were children of promise. So, Paul is saying, just because Abraham had fathered them both, 
that the promise of God is not given by virtue of descent. Let me say it again. That just because the promise was to Abraham, that that in itself was not a guarantee that all of them were to actually receive the promise of God. Because while one was a child of the flesh, the other one was a child of the promise. And you know, this week we were having um, a chat with, with Simba. And we were talking about the promises of God. How waiting on the promises of God can be hard. Hello? Waiting on the promises of God can be very hard. But whenever we are waiting on the promises of God and then someone comes and starts to reinterpret the promises that God has given you, then the flesh takes over. Because Sarah started to ask, did God mean that you would get an actual, actual son through me? Or did God have another agenda? Did God really say this? Maybe we need to help God in the endeavor of actualizing the promise that he, given, he had given us. God does not need your help to fulfill a promise that he has given you. He is God all by himself. There is no place for argument. <laughs> there, are those, there are those that are trying to figure out what I've done. So he does not need, he does not need our input in the promises that he has given us. But as I am saying this, I am saying this knowing as well that waiting can be very hard. You know, of all the promises that we've been given as a church, these past three months, we have looked as if those promises are in the east. While for us, I'm not sure if there's any other place apart from the west. But as we wait on God to be able to do his promise, then we continuously wait upon him without trying to figure out maybe he meant this. So over the things that God has promised you, write them down, number one. Write them down so that they do not get distorted over the waiting period. Because in the waiting, distortions can happen. Accidental or not, but distortions can happen, especially if you've not put in, put, put in, if you've not put it, if you have not put it down properly. I was waiting for Victor to smile, so it's, it's all good. So put it down. What has the Lord promised you? Put it down. Stop asking yourself, did God mean that he'll give you a a bit as you wait for your Mercedes as an example. God knows that there is a bit and there is a Mercedes. Even the spelling is very different. On a light note. But even for those things that we are waiting upon from God, that we can count on him, we can trust on his, in his name. The second thing, as we think through how to preserve the promises that God has done, apart from writing them, pray over them. As we pray over the things God has spoken over our lives, it allows faith to be able to be revived. Anything that you do not pray over 
even if it is a promise, chances are it can quickly die. The third thing about the things that God has promised you. Start preparing for them. I mean, there are things that if you're waiting for God and then you're not prepared for them when they come, they find you off the mark. And even as we look through and as we consider the whole aspect of waiting, Isaiah 40.31 says that, but those who wait for the Lord, those who are expecting from the Lord, those who look for and hope in him, shall change and renew their strength and power. That they shall lift their wings and mount up close to God as eagles. Mount up to the sun. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint or become tired. And I pray that we will be able to wait upon the Lord. Let's, let's do a couple of more than we will finish. Ten more minutes then we'll be done. Or, or less than that. Nine. For this is what the promise said about this time next year. I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only that, but these two, another example. Rebecca conceived two sons under exactly the same circumstances by our forefather Isaac. And the children were yet unborn and had so far done nothing either good or evil. Even so, in order further to carry out God's purpose of selection, election choice, which, which depends not on works or what men can do, but on him who calls them, it was said to her that the elder should serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, held in relative disregard in comparison with my feeling for Jacob. And Paul points out, because the question can start asking, Collins can ask himself this question. Why, why did God choose the Israelites? And Paul gives us two scenarios and says that just like he had chosen, um, just like he had chosen the Israelites, just like he had chosen Jacob, that it was not based on performance. Because he had chosen Jacob even before they were formed. Hello? Even before they were formed. And in his choosing, God expresses his sovereignty. But let me ask you this. And I want to hear your feedback. If God is sovereign to make a choice, Why can't he choose all of us to align to his will? Yeah? I'm meaning this. If God can choose, does it matter at all what we do? Yeah? Hello? If, if, God, if God is able to make a choice, does it matter what we do? One boy? It does, yes. Um, let me, let me, Terence? <laughs> that was that was one of the quickest salsas. <laughs> Ex explain five marks. 
yes, it matters, and this is why. One, God's sovereignty always remains God's sovereignty. It is in his prerogative to move as he pleases because he is God. And we cannot even be able to question why he would be able to do this over that. Let's agree. See, that is settled. Secondly, when we read and say, and it says that he loved Jacob and he hated Esau, does not necessarily mean that he, he, he now put Esau in a place whereby he was condemned. But it means that for the purpose of what he wanted to accomplish, he had just made a choice of Jacob over Esau. Because people ask this question, if God, if there is something that they call predestination or pre-election, if the election has already been decided, then why should you even attempt to do anything? But there are matters in which God over his purpose has already made an election, but that does not mean that man is to abscond duty and not make an attempt towards being able to fit into God's plan. So in as much as it says that um, he loved Jacob and Esau he hated, if we look at the life of Esau, even after all he said and done, Esau was a blessed man. Esau was a blessed man. And so, God will show mercy on whoever God chooses to show mercy. All we can do is to cry out that we would be able to be aligned to his mercies. Hello? Mark 3. 13. A very interesting verse. It says this. And he went up on the hillside. This is Jesus. And called to him for himself those whom he wanted and chose they to come to him. So even as we there's a question that someone asked that a theologian answered this way. A woman once said to Charles Fajo, I cannot understand why God should say that he hated Esau. That, Spurgeon replied, is not my difficulty, madam. My trouble is to understand how God could choose to love Jacob. And you know, sometimes we would affix human attributes to God and say, did God just come and randomly choose Jacob? And the reasons for God choosing Jacob may be even outside our realm of, of control. But the key thing is that we must know that in every decision God has made, he has a plan and he has a reason. Let's finish off with this verse, then we will continue from there. What shall we conclude then? Is there injustice upon God's part? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion. Pity on whom I will have compassion. So then God's gift is not a question of human will and human effort, but of God's mercy. It depends on one's own willingness nor on his strenuous nor on his strenuous exertion as in running a race but on God's having mercy on him and you know what mercy is not getting what we deserve mercy is not getting what we deserve because if we were to get what we deserve i'm not sure how many of us would be here this sunday God is never less than fair with anyone, but fully reserves the right to be more than fair with individuals as he chooses. So he will be fair on all of us, but he will choose to be more than fair with some of us. Let's stand up this morning.
the last bit is that it becomes dangerous as well when we start looking at God's mercies as an obligation for God to do things for us. That God is not obliged to do anything for us. But because he is so rich in love and mercy, he chooses to be faithful to us even when we are not faithful. And I am praying, even as we wait upon God to move over different things and scenarios of our lives, that our strength would be renewed, that we would be able to tap into new mercies from God, that we'll be able to find favor with God. And it's interesting, in the walks of certain individuals, it speaks of, and they found favor with God. And they found grace with God. I am praying that as a church, that we'll find new grace, new favor with God. That in our walk, we'll find new favor, new grace with God. That in our waiting upon the Lord, that we'll not give up, but that we'll be able to find new lease of life. That we'll be able to find new strength. Let's close our eyes in prayer. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you. We bless you for your goodness and your mercies. Lord, we pray, even as we stand before you this morning, May you renew each and every part of us that is feeling worn out, out of waiting on the promises that, Lord, you had spoken to us that seems long ago. That, Lord, may you give us the strength to wait, the strength to hold on to everything that, Lord, you've said over our lives, the strength not to give up and to push forward and onwards. Lord, may we find new, fa new favor, new grace, and new mercies, Lord, to the glory and honor of your name.